Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome back to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt, the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. It's almost two years since my colleagues and I first received the order to work from home with the fears of the spread of coronavirus. Once again, we find ourselves working from home here in Hong Kong as we find ourselves, like most of the world, facing the challenges of the new Omicron variant. So speaking from experience, at some point you may well hear the distant sound of a large masonry drill, if not at least the sound of someone sledgehammering a wall, I can assure you that is the authentic work from home sound of Hong Kong, so bear with me. So welcome to the new year, here we are two weeks into the year of 2022 and roughly two weeks away from the year of the tiger, and events seem to be escalating and evolving at an ever maddening pace. In the US, the talk of the prospect of a new civil war has spilled over from blogs in the outer reaches of Twitter and YouTube into mainstream publications, as Joe Biden struggles to maintain the American democratic vision. Meanwhile in Europe, all eyes are on the Russian tanks and troops massing on the Ukrainian border. In the South China Sea, the US Navy has decided anything the PLA Navy can do, they can do better with more ships and firepower. Almost precisely one week after two Chinese aircraft carriers conducted exercises, not one but two US carrier strike groups have sailed to the same location to conduct their own exercises. And here in the special administrative region of the People's Republic of China, we've just seen the former paramilitary chief in charge of Xinjiang, Major General Peng Jingtang, take up his new position in charge of the Hong Kong garrison of the People's Liberation Army. And of course, for those of us watching China's geopolitical relationships, there's been a lot to keep an eye on. The headline news has of course been all about Kazakhstan, the country where Xi Jinping launched China's Global Belt and Road Initiative in 2013, where Beijing has since invested tens of billions of dollars in developing Kazakhstan's huge resources of gas and oil. We're going to hear about the deep relationship between Kazakhstan and China from one of our reporters following this issue. But first, you're going to hear about an extraordinarily busy week for Beijing's diplomats at home. They're just finishing up a five-day conference with the foreign ministers of the Arab Gulf states, otherwise known as the countries with much of the world's oil supply. And in a 24-hour period, Beijing is also receiving visits from the foreign ministers of Turkey and Iran. Now, collectively, these countries have extreme differences of opinion with each other, so why are they all sending emissaries to China? Let's head to Beijing and find out. Over the past 12 months, we've looked at how US President Joe Biden has sought to bring nations together and build alliances, if not to encircle China, then at least to provide a united front. But this week, we've seen a substantial step forward in China's relationships with the Middle East. 
A delegation of foreign ministers representing the regional group known as the Gulf Cooperation Council have been in the eastern Chinese city of Wuxi in Jiangsu province this week. Now, that group consists of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Oman, Kuwait and Bahrain. At the same time, Turkey's foreign minister is landing in China this week and Iran's foreign minister is expected to land today. That's a very busy agenda for Beijing's diplomatic service. Our colleague in our Beijing bureau, Kinling Lo, is with me and she's been following developments this week. Kinling, hello. Hello. Now, there's a lot of talk about this new free trade agreement between China and the Gulf states. As we speak right now, you're in that kind of hurry up and wait moment that all journalists live through and and hate. You know what's coming, but it's not here yet. So before the official announcement, what do we actually know about this free trade agreement between the Gulf states and China? So Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has met with the Gulf Cooperation Council Secretary General and in their joint declaration produced after the meeting, they have said that both sides agreed that the conditions for China and the GCC to establish this free trade agreement are ripe and then the process will be accelerated. But as we know, the this whole negotiation on a free trade agreement has started since 2004. So this negotiation has been going on for a pretty long time and progress has been more or less stalled over the years. Regular meetings have been held, but it didn't seem like a lot of agreements have been able to be reached in the past years. I mean, this does sound very positive that at least they are now saying that the conditions are ripe. And so they agreed to wrap up negotiations as soon as possible. And I mean, it does suggest that at least the talks are entering uh, more of a final stage than I guess in the past years that we, we have been seeing. And because we know that China is the region's biggest trading partner and energy buyer. And also because the region is also uh, obviously the biggest exporter of oil and energy in the world. So it, it makes a perfect match for China and the GCC to make this kind of agreement. Although little is known about what is inside the FTA, we believe that it's more or less much focused on energy trade. So on the face of it, this is China securing its oil supplies at a time of soaring prices, shortages, great stress upon supply chains worldwide. Do we know what the Gulf states want out of China? Is it about the photovoltaics that China is so dominant in in the worldwide industry? Or what else is possibly being discussed? The GCC countries um, have actually been wanting to diversify their economy because much of it was focused on energy and oil. And um, China's promise to them was to help diversify that. So a lot of other areas of cooperation were also mentioned in the statements produced from these meetings. So, for example, Beijing was saying it was willing to cooperate on matters ranging from agriculture, e-commerce, to law enforcement and even archaeological projects. So these are other, uh, I would say, newer areas of cooperation that, that was not really seen between um, China and, and these countries before. Another interesting thing is, I think a few of these GCC countries mentioned that they would like to promote Chinese culture and language in their countries. And actually there, there has been a trend 
trend of opening Chinese language schools in their region because they have been quite popular because of like growing business ties with China. And it's an interesting contrast with the closing down of Confucius Institutes, I mean, in the West. That's a really interesting pivot you point to there with the education. And of course, it goes without saying that the US has held a dominant role in that region, both in selling arms uh, and in inserting itself in, in various kind of disputes between these Gulf states. Have you heard from any analysts or any of your sources about a, a push by China to put itself as the alternative, as the uh, major superpower in the region? China is definitely trying to step up its role in the region beyond energy trade. China has repeatedly been proposing quite a lot of security-related frameworks in the past few years, and this is a difference from its previous interest of only focusing on economy. So, for example, it has offered to host a multilateral security framework in the Arab region to solve uh, peace issues. And For example, China would also offered that they could host the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. So these are things that they have been doing. And also from diplomatic statements, these countries have welcomed or expressed appreciation for China's offer, but we don't really see anything substantial coming up. We do see that from the statements that they do agree to step up strategic cooperation, but we have no idea what it actually means. And in terms of security cooperation, I don't think there's anything now that suggests that China will in any way replace or rival the U.S. traditional role in the region. Well, on that topic, I can only imagine what kind of speculation uh, and reporting we'll get this weekend. It's about noon on Friday Hong Kong time that we're speaking right now and and Iran's foreign minister is due to land in Beijing today. It's very interesting that Beijing seems to be asserting a role in negotiations with Iran over its nuclear program and offering economic assistance, which may indeed help it deal with the US sanctions. What are you hearing about this? So the Iran nuclear talks is definitely high on agenda when the Iranian foreign minister comes to meet Wang Yi today. It was also actually a matter of discussion for Wang and the other foreign ministers from the Gulf area that happened already in the past week. So we know that this issue is actually a very pressing and important matter that is now happening and concerns every country um, in the region. So the talk that are going on in Vienna is a renegotiation of the Iran nuclear deal because Donald Trump has walked out of the deals in 2018. And the talks has been ongoing since late November and on and off from uh, December uh, until now. And it, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of positive developments that have been coming out. And the analysts have been saying if this is dragged on longer, it really doesn't sound like that there is going to be much of a breakthrough and there is a risk of the deal falling out completely. Um, China is really important in this negotiation as well as Russia because Iranians are unwilling to sit down with the U.S. officials on the same negotiating table. So at least for now. So the other countries are the go-between between the two negotiating parties. And because Russia, China and Iran have already aligned their stance or at least 
Russia and China has have shown understanding to Iran's stance in this negotiation. And so they are acting as the go-between for other Western countries and Iran in making any progress in this deal. And Chinese analysts have been saying that they think Iran will ask for China's help in trying to speed up the deal because Iran really needs the lift of economic sanctions that was launched again by Trump in 2018 after walking out from the deal. And Iran has also retaliated by producing uranium to a level that is near the ability of producing nuclear weapons. So, so a lot of things are at stake. And it looks like while Joe Biden was organising his democracy conference, his 200-person Zoom call, in his effort to get an alliance, there's also been some alliance building on the on the other sphere of the world between uh, China and Russia, various partners in uh, the Middle East. Can I just turn to this this broader picture this week in Beijing? We've got you know the Gulf state ministers; they've come for their five-day meeting. We've got the foreign minister from Turkey, the foreign minister from Iran landing in Beijing. It seems a lot going on for for China's diplomacy this week. Is there much discussion in Beijing, Kindling, amongst analysts and your sources about what looks like a, a burst of Middle Eastern engagement this week? So China is obviously trying to show the world through the string of meetings with countries in the same region that they are portraying themselves to be a peacemaking player in the Middle East. That is different from how it feels the U.S. traditional role in the region. And I think that has been successful in a way because these countries that have met China have in their um, statements praised China's role in the region. And also they've given China a diplomatic backing, which it desperately needs right now. For example, many of the countries have said that they understand China's position on human rights issues, on Taiwan issues, and support China's hosting of the Winter Olympics that's happening in February. These are all hot topics that China is facing pressure from the West. So that backing from these Middle Eastern powers, it came really in time for China. But in terms of real deals, as we also talked about, like the free trade agreement, there is nothing really substantial that has came out. There aren't really big diplomatic or economic breakthroughs from what was produced in the meetings as, as, as far as we've seen. So most of these have more or less seemed to remain as a diplomatic show, to put it simply. A diplomatic show that uh, no doubt the White House will be tuned in and following every development on uh, as we will. Uh, as we mentioned, the, uh, the Iranian foreign minister comes in later today to Beijing. You've got a very big day ahead of you, Kinling Lo. We'll be reading your reports over the weekend. Of course, all the analysis as well on scmp.com. Kinling Lo, thank you very much. Thank you. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com slash newsletters. Jack, as I speak to you, the Russian-led forces sent into quell the civil uprising in Kazakhstan are supposed to be leaving. But while much of the focus has been on Russia's intervention, there's not been all that much attention paid 
to China's strategic interests. Now, over the past week, you've reported on a three-step escalation in China's rhetoric and response to the events in Kazakhstan. Can you take us through how that played out? Thanks, Jared. So first, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, issued a statement saying that China would resolutely oppose any forces that undermine Kazakhstan's stability, the peaceful life of its people, and any external forces deliberately creating uh, turbulence, instigating a color revolution, a term that's frequently used by Chinese leaders to talk about protests in foreign countries. And then just three days later, China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, said China is going to increase law enforcement and security cooperation. So we're talking about potential military cooperation now. And then a day later in the call, Wang Yi said again that he pledges to help Kazakhstan fight the three evils, which are terrorism, separatism and religious extremism. And the three evil forces is usually used by members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or the SCO, which is a Beijing-led regional alliance. And it's quite interesting because I talked to Raffaello Pantucci of the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore, and he said China is very unlikely to intervene in Kazakhstan as Russia did because China is relatively inexperienced with military intervention. Most of its military campaigns have been in some parts of Africa doing peacekeeping missions. And China also has anti-piracy missions in the Gulf Bay. But that's it. But China also has an extensive border with the Kazakhstan. And if I'm correct, uh, there's a quite a number of, uh, let's say, security forces and military just across the way in Xinjiang near Kazakhstan. Yes, so one of China's concern is whether that unrest will spill into its borders. And that, as far as we know, is unlikely at the moment. And within Kazakhstan, the situation has been stabilized with stores reopening, internet restored, people getting food again. But on the long term, China needs to look at whether the security situation will threaten its investments, its projects in Kazakhstan. China and Kazakhstan has a very strong and healthy trade relationship. That includes a major pipeline and Kazakhstan being one of the most stable and most wealthy neighbors of China in the region. It's made a lot of money with its oil industry. So China will want to expand that relationship, especially with the Belt and Road Initiative that Kazakhstan is so vital to. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative, Jack, because You know, I think in the past couple of weeks, a lot of people in the West went diving to their Google Maps to double check exactly where Kazakhstan is and learned both A, how big it is and who its neighbours are, you know, Afghanistan, Xinjiang. Um, But for people with a sense of history, like both ancient and contemporary, Kazakhstan has a huge strategic and symbolic importance to China. I mean, A, it was the start of the Silk Road, But in 2013, that's where Xi Jinping decided to announce the Belt and Road Initiative. Yes. So the Chinese approach to Kazakhstan, as far as we see, is very pragmatic. It sees it as a trade partner. It sees it as a country of relative stability where infrastructure projects can go into, where Chinese money can invest in. But in terms of regional security, we're not seeing the interest in Chinese forces entering Kazakhstan, as we see in Russia, because Russia being the head of the CSTO, that's the Collective Security Treaty Organization, 
it has deployed forces for the first time in Kazakhstan under the name of peacekeeping forces. But Moscow has been more proactive in sending its troops to other countries than China does. So it remains that the China-Kazakhstan relationship is purely trade, purely economic, and purely about cultural exchange. And of course, China's invested tens of billions of dollars, both in building that pipeline to get the natural gas out of Kazakhstan, but also the pipeline that goes across Kazakhstan. That's also part of the Belt and Road. But I'm also interested that the story that you filed just a few days ago picked up on a relationship within the Kazakhstan government that was quite closely linked to China. Tell us more about that. It's interesting that many officials in the Kazakh government has China ties because many of them studied there. And one of them has a particularly close tie with China, and that's the former security chief, Karim Masimov. Karim Masimov is a close ally to the former president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, who has been the president of Kazakhstan for nearly 29 years, the first one. And he has held on to that post for nearly three decades until he resigned due to protests in 2019. So Masimov first started as a trade official to China for the Soviet Union. And then he went on exchange to study Chinese at the Beijing Language and Culture University between 1988 and 1989. And then he returned to Kazakhstan after the Soviet Union collapsed and worked in Urumqi in China's far west Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region as a legal advisor to the trade office there. And then he returned to China in Wuhan University to study international law. And he stayed there for three years. And Chinese media and the university love to brag that he finished a four-year program in three years. So he's a quite a bright student and was very friendly with classmates, according to the university. So the bright student, he's worked on you know both sides of the fence with the USSR and China, but he's, he's currently looking for new jobs. Can I say that lightheartedly? I don't think he's going to find a job very soon because he's been arrested on suspicion of treason. I don't think he will be returning to the job market very soon. We don't really know the situation surrounding him. But he has been sacked. And some people have speculated that there is a power struggle between the current president, Kasim Jomat Tokayev, and his predecessor, Nazarbayev. And the dismissal of Masimov shows that because he was an ally of Nazarbayev and he became the intelligence chief because of Nazarbayev. And now his dismissal might indicate a power struggle. But now that Nazarbayev has reappeared in the public eye in the past few days, that theory is now less credible. So what are you hearing from your sources, from analysts about the situation now? As we know, as you've reported, the internet's been turned back on after being you know, turned off in Kazakhstan looks like relative calm has descended after what started out as protests over a massive price rise in LPG gas turned into burning of government buildings and outright anarchy in the streets. What's the forecast you're hearing from your sources right now? Right now, they're saying it's too early to tell. Although the society is returning to normal, there is always a concern that there will be another protest. And people on the streets are asking whether there will be political reform to prevent another protest of this kind from happening, because there were protests back in 2018 as well. And for China, it needs to see whether Kazakhstan will remain as stable as it seemed. It has been relatively stable for the past 30 years, 
but whether these protests will threaten Chinese investments and Chinese projects in the country, that remains the job of security planners, security advisors to analyse. No doubt you'll be keeping a very close eye on any further announcements. Jack Lau, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. That's all for this week, our first episode for 2022. Looking ahead over the next 12 months, there's some significant anniversaries that are going to resonate profoundly in the world of China geopolitics. In February, we'll be looking at 50 years since the then US President Richard Nixon made his historic first visit to China, the first ever visit by an American president to the PRC. In May, it's the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty between the United States and what was then the USSR. Expect some interesting discussions about China's massive investment in ballistic missiles since then and its testing of hypersonic missiles now. And in July, it's going to be the 25th anniversary of what we in Hong Kong know as the handover, when Hong Kong was officially handed back to China after the 99-year lease signed with the British had ended. And all of this as the world continues to find new challenges and new paradigms amid an ongoing pandemic and new variants of the coronavirus. As we've said often here, keep that mask on, stay safe, stay socially distant, but stay in touch. Find all the latest news and analysis on scmp.com and find us on Twitter at SCMP News. See you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.